The hard part of selling your video game? Well, that's simply letting the community and players know it exists. That's particularly true if you're about to launch a new game and don't have an established brand yet. What's the solution? Well, it's creating your own dedicated online presence that lets you connect directly with players, gather signups for your email campaigns, and communicate things like updates about your game's development process or new features. You can build an online storefront, grow your community, run pre-orders and subscription programs, and generally bring in more long-term revenue by selling game keys, virtual goods, or bundles. Especially for indie developers, pre-orders are underutilized lifeline, but any size studio can benefit from them. That time block before the game is fully released, it's prime opportunity for building awareness and getting early stage pre-launch revenue, which can be critical for sustaining your project throughout the development cycle, and it helps you forecast your game's first year sales. Exola can help you accomplish this with Exola Game Sales. Want to know more about how to get started generating more revenue for your game? Visit exola.pro slash game sales or go to the link in the podcast description below. Switching mediation providers might seem like a pain in the ass, but it doesn't have to be. If you're thinking of making the transition from Mopub to IronSource, we've got you covered. First, we've created a dedicated tool that removes the manual work when migrating to IronSource mediation. Second, we'll be holding workshops with IronSource experts where you can have all your migration needs taken care of. And if you want to do it yourself, we also have technical documentation for migrating to IronSource mediation in our Knowledge Center. To learn more about these initiatives and begin monetizing with IronSource today, head to www.is.com forward slash migrate. That's www.is.com forward slash migrate. Excited about NFTs in the metaverse? Ready to be part of the future of gaming? Recur is looking for talented producers, product managers, game designers, economy designers, and engineers. Recur is building branded NFT collectibles and games with top IP, including College Sports, Paramount, Star Trek, Nickelodeon, Sanrio, and more, using its best-in-the-industry technology platform. Recur's platform streamlines the NFT collecting experience. No crypto or third-party wallets required. Simply buy an NFT with your credit card or Apple Pay. And Recur's robust gamification system creates infinite collecting and gameplay possibilities from which to make compelling play and earn experiences. Recur is backed by some of the biggest names in crypto and NFTs, including billionaire Stephen Cohn, Gary Vee, and Gemini, among others. Join us now and get ready to ride a rocket ship. Welcome, welcome, everybody, to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Mishka Katkov, and today we have very, very interesting guests. So we have Hemal Thacker, Global Head of Gaming and, and Interactive Entertainment at Goldman Sachs. Hemal, welcome to the podcast. And we have Kartik Prabhakara, a founding partner of Arim, an independent investment bank, bank providing M&A and financing advice to technology companies. Kartik, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mishka. Pleasure to be did I pronounce did I pronounce Arim correct? It's it's Arim. Arim. See, Areem. I always do the, the wrong way. Thank you. Uh, anyways, uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, both of you gentlemen know everything, have seen everything, and heard everything, and about M and A in games. And but before we start talking about M and A, uh, could you please kind of introduce yourself? So Hemal, if we can start with you, 
Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for thank you for having me, and uh, uh, nice to be here. I'm I'm dialing in from uh, San Francisco, which is where I'm based. Uh, I run our global gaming and interactive entertainment investment banking business. Practically, that means I spend all my time with our gaming companies across uh, the U.S., Europe, and Asia on M&A, but also listings as well and IPOs and private financing and that sort of thing. Um, to give you a flavor, you know, we've, we've uh, been fortunate in, in working on some of the major transactions in the space. Um, you know, we helped uh, Microsoft most recently on their bid for Activision. Uh, we helped Zynga on the sale to Take-Two and Zenimax on sale to Microsoft. Uh, in Europe, we helped Sumo Group on their sale to Tencent and most recently, Kirkby and Lego in their investment in Epic Games. Um, you know, in Asia, we uh, we helped Square Enix just recently uh, on their sale of studios to Embracer Group, um, and then a whole bunch of other stuff: Blue Mobile sale to EA and, and things like that. And then on the listing side, um, you know, we led the direct listing for Roblox and for Unity, uh, for Corsair and Iron Source, and so. Um, you know, really great amount of activity over the last couple of years and, uh, uh, you know, have been in and around things with my, my, my colleague at, at Areen Karthik as well, who candidly, you know, is number one in everything in the mid, mid, mid cap and small cap space in this as well. So great to be uh, here with him as well today. Amazing. And just a quick question. Is there a bigger team at Goldman that is focusing on gaming or is it kind of part of interactive entertainment? Uh, how is that structured? Yeah, so so I guess um, I sit within a group in Goldman called the Technology Media and Telecom Group, and that group covers uh, companies all across the, the the space, whether it's internet or software or, or other. Uh, in gaming, we operate sort of we have a global person, which is me, and focusing on the industry. Uh, my role is uh, essentially um, helping in our relationships across the ecosystem and trying to help companies do what they want to do in this space. Uh, and then we have, you know, an array of people in various regions who are focused on specific subsets of clients um, for different expertise areas. So, you, you know, we have a large team as a result, um, maybe 15, 20 people across the, the globe who are focused in this space in one way or another. Uh, you know, it varies by region. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, great to be here on behalf of everybody. Amazing. Uh, Kartik, uh, if you will uh, introduce your, yourself, and of course, Areem is always seen in, in pretty much most of the M&As that has been happening uh, in, in the gaming industry. Thank you, Mishka. You know, big fan of your podcast. It's, uh, it's uh, very informative and entertaining at times, too. So it's, uh, we'll be, we love the conversations. Um, so yeah, so I'm one of the co-founders and a partner at Areem. Uh, we are a gaming and interactive entertainment focused investment bank. So we advise on M&A. Um, mostly it's been working with entrepreneurs and holds of these companies on, on their exits. And then also we advise on late stage financings for some of these companies. So we've been, we've been very fortunate as, you know, the sector has seen a lot of activity and we've been fortunate to have worked on many. So since the start of 2020, I think we've worked on just over 30 deals uh, in, in gaming, which, is, uh, which has been really interesting. So we have, uh, we're a team of 20 based in London, San Francisco and Berlin. And, you know, we've worked across the board on, you know, mobile, you know, studios like Peak Games, which was sold to Zynga. Uh, studios like Hutch, Gram Games, 
seriously and so on. And then uh, we've done a lot of stuff on the PC console side as well as games as a service, companies like Jagex, Unknown Worlds, the Soldiers Crafting, um, Daybreak, Sandbox, and so on. And then uh, um, more recently, you know, obviously there's been more activity in and around the ecosystem. So, for example, you know, the sale of uh, Faceit and ESL to uh, Savvy Gaming Group, where uh, of course Amel and Goldman were involved. So on the other mm-hmm. side, um, so we're seeing more activity there too. So yeah, pleasure to be here and look forward, looking forward to the conversation. And just a quick question about Reem. When you represent, do you represent a gaming company or do you represent the acquire or do you have to choose in between or are you just in between making sure that both parties are happy with the deal? Like how does it work for, for the listeners? Yeah. So you you work on one side, you know, you're either advising the sellers or the other studios um, and working with the entrepreneur and the founder as well as their board. Um, and then that's what we mostly do. So we work with uh, most of the studios when they're looking to sell or a certain situation where they're evaluating potential exit. Um, that's mostly been, and then, hey, well, maybe you can cover it off as well, you know, because you can, there are still occasions where you can be on either side too. Again, I agree. You pick, you pick a side and, and, you know, I think we tend to sit with sellers as well, but usually larger companies. Um, and then occasionally you work on the buy side too. I mean, Microsoft and, uh, you may know, uh, uh, Karthik mentioned Savvy Group, where we helped on uh, the acquisition of ESL Face It. So we, we'll we'll uh, we'll work with clients depending on what they want to do and and help them any way we can. All right, so let's start talking about the uh, the the industry, which has been really really crazy during the the past two years. Um, a lot of consolidation, as you mentioned, uh, all the list down to you know Microsoft buying Activision, so of all sizes and of gigantic sizes, like all the records were broken on consecutive years. Um, what has been driving this sort of a consolidation over the uh, over the last few years? Uh, Kartik, if we can start with you. Yeah, so I think you've got to obviously break it down. But in general, look, with, with gaming companies and content, um, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to, to build new IP, right? And M&A provides a value-creative way for companies to acquire newer IPs bring it into the fold, and then build more predictability into their own business, right? Because uh, a portfolio works and is perceived much better than, you know, standalone titles. So I think that's one of the reasons. Second is M&A in general has worked uh, in, in gaming. Uh, you know, different acquirers have used different approaches. Some have left the studio standalone. Others have tried varying levels of integration. But by and large, you know, MA is complicated, but it has worked well. So as a consequence, there's been more confidence in with other companies to engage in the same thing. And I think the third one is, you know, there's just it's a massive industry and it's uh it's it's grown very quickly. So MA can be a quick way to to also scale up uh, in such an environment. Right. And then obviously there are specific drivers within each of each of these segments. So I think if you look at if you look at the, the pace of activity, I think um, it has, as you said, it has been record-breaking years. Um, so if you look at what the drivers are, so you break it down and look at what's happening on mobile, right? On on mobile, the key driver for many of these deals is, is one is diversification of portfolio. It's uh, acquiring companies which are experts in specific genres that you can, you can then 
these businesses are then acquired and then you can scale. That has has worked very well and has been a focus area, right, for many of the acquirers. Whether you look at the acquisitions that Zynga has done or or Take Two has done, so on, right. So that's number one. Uh, second is it's the if you look at the number of titles that are, that are generating over 100 million of revenue, uh, it's it's not a whole lot, right? So so once games show a promise to uh, to get to those levels, inevitably they tend to be very sticky and forever green franchises. So um, and so when acquirers see this. Uh, companies with with such a game or title or collection of IPs with such scale, again, they become really valuable and attractive targets because there's a lot of runway for growth um, and with scale and additional expertise, usually the financial performance uh, uh, can be further improved in those situations. And then, of course, on mobile, again, you know, it's it's the whole platform diversification. So you've seen Embracer buying mobile studios. Take-Two Zynga is another example. Um, around the same theme, and so so that's on mobile. I'm sure Hemal will have other points to add. Um, I think similarly on, on on console, it's it's really all about the IP. Um, uh, it's it's key, and what we're seeing is the longevity and and importance of uh, of IP. So, uh, for example, you know we advised Unknown Worlds and the sale to Crafted. And again, it was largely driven by the quality of the IP and the opportunities and roadmap ahead uh, in such a transaction. Um, and so, so th- those have been the main drivers for why this is, you know, the pace has continued. Um, and we will see some variant of this, but you know, continued activity moving forward. Perhaps slightly different drivers, but it's it's, it's a very active sector. So, Kartik, you mentioned IP as as one of the uh, one of the major parts, and. And by IP, you probably mean also like forever franchises, what Zynga dubs in, in the sense that um, titles that you could be running for a decade or older and sometimes titles that where you can do brand extensions and kind of take them to a, to a different uh, different type of game, you know, Candy Crush Saga, Candy Soda Saga, etc. Success with the acquisitions where especially Zynga was great at this, where they kept acquiring more, t- more companies and their value went up, where essentially... Uh, decreased the cost of acquisition actually made the acquisition even more sensible uh so that that's of course the one uh the overall size of the industry uh probably helps to acquire more capital as as investors are seeing that there's there's plenty of more to grow and then portfolio and platform diversification so both are probably actions to decrease the volatility uh if certain genres are are you know, suffering like let's say social casino. We see a lot of social casino opening up their portfolios, trying to get more casual games, et cetera, et cetera. Difficult to move into into different cores, but still, they probably the best way is to acquire a studio with that knowledge rather than try to start building that that expertise from the from the scratch. Even though it's cheaper, but it's it's not proven. And then diversification of the platform. I assume this is due to IDFA deprecation, uh, where where a lot of cross platform has become. Uh, more and more important, we see a lot of mobile companies, especially on the mo- especially on the mid core side, uh, moving into you know having PC SKUs, and, and even Zynga was launching like a Switch game or s- something like that. So, uh, kind of makes sense. Uh, Hemal, do you have anything? Uh, I mean, you probably have a lot of thing to add to this, but because Kartik was kind of focusing on on the on the console side, oh sorry, on the mobile side, but how is it on you know on PC side and with these gigantic franchises? Yeah, I mean, look, Carter makes some great points on uh, on mobile and on, on on the console side. I think the 
maybe just to add a different lens to it then, um, because I think it was very comprehensive. I think uh, one is the investor perspective, right? So let's take, if you're a seller, you have these, these great assets that could be really valuable for, for these acquirers. I think um, from the acquirer's perspective and the investors on the back end, what we see a lot of is, um, you know, how do investors think about value and what's more valuable than something else, right? And I think that the lens that we typically see is um, investors really care about what is the visibility of your revenue and what is the kind of risks that's associated with that revenue, right? Um, and so franchise diversification I really think about it as it's like audience diversification because gaming is not really one uniform community, right? An MMO player is a very different beast than an FPS player, um, but they're equally as valuable just in different ways. And if you can have exposure to different audiences, and this applies not just in franchises, but to Karthik's point around platforms too, right? A mobile player versus a PC console player, um, that expands your addressable market, if you will, right? And also hedges various audiences against each other right if one declines the other is still doing okay that kind of thing um and then you know the cadence of your revenue streams right uh uh around revenue visibility helps too so if you have multiple franchises they're all spitting off cash and that's really helpful uh you've also seen that play through more broadly as to how the industry as a whole has shifted towards this you know everyone wants to go into life services model now not everybody there's still some stuff that is extremely well take uh some of the, the recent premium paid releases that are still doing phenomenally well. But in general, there's a there's an investor focus on that. So uh, IP as a result is super useful, right? Because if you can buy something that has inherent value and brand value with uh, users uh, and players, you can create different experiences around that, right? Um, and, you know, whether that's, you know, premium paid game or then a live service offshoot or, or whatever you want to do, that's kind of up to you. So I think we also see... The other lens here, which is important, is um, uh, M&A occurring not just for the IP and the content, but also for the developers. Because uh, if you think about what's happening across the ecosystem, there's a bit of a talent war going on, right? Um, and that's true across PC console. It's also true across mobile. High-quality developers are one of the big choke points in the industry. And so studios that have that talent and the ability to then leverage that development talent across different IPs, uh, we've seen acquisitions occur purely for that reason, right? Um, and uh, I think that will continue as well. Uh, you mentioned, I, I mean, both of you mentioned IP quite a lot. Um, how do you measure the power of, of an IP? Because I understand you can look at a single game, let's say, well, well let's say Toon Blast, uh, a really, really great game from Peak. Um, I don't even remember how much money that game keeps making every year, but incredibly stable revenues in hundreds of millions every year. Now, is that a, do you see that as an IP because we haven't seen sort of a brand extension from Toon Blast or is it just a single game? Like how, I'm just curious to understand how, how do, how do bankers essentially view something as a IP like PUBG or an IP like a Garena Free Fire, which is arguably worse I, per, as an IP, but probably better as a, let's say a standalone mobile game. Um, Kartik, if you, if you wish to take that. So, I think two, two things. So. For a game that's gotten to a certain scale with an audience, um, I think certainly where you know you you have a captive user base, and you know now live services is quite key. So you're releasing new content. There's new ways to monetize. 
but you basically have good visibility on cohorts and a certain predictability that comes with it, right? Um, so, you know, decisions around incremental ad spend, uh, so on, on, on that title itself is actually, you know, you, you can, you can forecast that to a great, uh, to a great degree in terms of accuracy, right? So, I think that's the fundamental thing because let's say when you're launching a new game, it's hard to tell whether how big that is going to be or how successful it's going to be. But I think you can you can get past certain thresholds where then it becomes, you know, at least visible what needs to happen. A lot of things still need to go right. But then you can say, okay, yeah, it can go from being a $50 million game to a $100 million game, right? So, so that that is the starting point. And then... Obviously, in terms of extensions, now you're seeing, of course, lots of things happening, right? Which is games going into, you know, what we've seen with League of Legends and so on, where, you know, it's showing on Netflix, Sonic, what we're seeing. But that's, of course, you know, almost a second layer because the, the, the fundamental thing is, you know, is this sustainable? And can you see, can you see a path to this particular game growing, right? I think that's, and there are lots of, you know, uh, IP that, like, for example, Jagex IP is 20 years old, RuneScape is 20 years old, but still is having its best years. So um, so I think that is that is sort of uh, the, the most important important thing. And then, of course, there are layers to build on top of that in terms of creating additional value from an acquirer's perspective or even for the studio itself. Um, but like Toy Blast, Toon Blast are great extensions, uh, which have both reached a critical mass. So you, you know that they're going to be, uh, there's a certain level of cash generation that's going to come from those games, uh, you know, for at least at least the, the medium term. Got it. So for mobile side, it's very analytical, very data-driven, uh, what determines the IP. And Hamal, how is it with the, um, you know, uh, with, with these larger, especially PC console uh, IPs and franchises? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, I think the, the, there's a still an analytical framework, which is very similar, right? The points I'd add would be um, if, you try and, if, if you're trying to build a, just trying to build a value case, right? Let's say you're, 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 you're in a studio and, and you're thinking about selling, where do you go from there? I, I think understanding who your potential audience really is, is important. And there's a difference between the audience you have now versus the audience you could have, right? Um, and then you kind of work backwards a little bit around, okay, well, what are the various channels that I want to attack that audience with, right? And you may have an existing $100 million a year game, which has been active for seven years, in which case there's a premium that's on that. I mean, there's a captive audience, as Karthik said, and uh, that's really valuable. But you could also be at a stage where you're really early, right? In which case you may still have the same business plan, right? They, we're going to grow this, we're going to um, have all this success across the audience. But what you're going to see from an acquirer is they're going to discount that potential a little bit more because they're going to say there's more risk inherent in this. It hasn't proven itself yet. But they'll still understand, okay, well, that's the direction you want to head. You can add to that different games on different platforms. You can add to that um, different forms of media, these type of things. So what you typically see is a real focus on how do you build an expansive business case around your IP uh, with multiple games, with multiple, you know, there's a cadence that occurs over multiple years, there's television, et cetera. And then you have a, a bid-ask spread effectively between yourself and the acquirer, where the acquirer will say, yeah, but, you know, that's early, or yeah, but, you know, this could take a while, discount this, haircut this, whatever else. And you come to a view as to, okay, what's reasonable to pay for for the value you've already created now, 
versus the value you could create in the future. Um, and the the where the pendulum swings is often dependent on competitive tension, which is all about the art, I suppose, of M&A. Um, and yeah, and that's, that's where the deferred um, gains for the seller are essentially uh, put in. It's like, how much do you believe uh, that the, the future will bring? Um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the future. Now, the past has been booming, uh, 2020, 2021. Even the beginning of 2022 was, was quite great. But there's a massive shift in the macro environment. I mean, we see multiple things happening at the same time. Inflation, interest rate going up. Um, well, inflation being, being boosted even more by a war. Um, you know, all kinds of issues. And, and lockdowns in China all, all affecting the, uh, the, the global economy quite significantly. And through that, we've seen stock, you know, stock indexes going down in, in almost every country. Uh, technology stock, Netflix probably being um, sadly the poster board, but even Amazon was was down um, well, compared to to quite quite crazy years during when everybody was in lockdown. But what does this mean to to the gaming industry, especially looking at the uh, at the, the public market as well as looking at game company valuations? How uh, sort of um, downturn resistant is is the gaming um, gaming industry? I mean, we've seen only. 2008 was the last one uh, where we where we probably saw a market crash. So, um, Hemal, if if we start with you um, regarding that public company standpoint, and then maybe you know there's there's an angle here which is the private company standpoint, which 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 Karthik will have a, a strong view on. Um, you know, look, I, I think what we're seeing in this macro backdrop is there's some of this that's related to games, but there's a lot of this that's completely unrelated to games, um, and. What you have is interest rates, inflation. There's a general move away from equities into cash. Right? And that literally is people taking money out of the market in general. The challenge with that is that there's so much capital that is tied to passive index flows that when, you know, when people pull money out, it pulls money out of everything. Right? So you've seen different sectors across the space, whether it's you know, industrials to technology, everyone's getting punished. Right? Um, now, what's interesting there is what that doesn't distinguish is the, the value and also the quality of various different businesses. Now, the great thing about gaming is it's inherently, if you do it right, a pretty profitable business, right? And that's not true of other sectors. Uh, but nonetheless, it's been you know, hit hard as well. So I suspect what, we're, what we'll see is when market calms down, and, and there's a lot going in on there, right? You mentioned some geopolitical issues as well. Um, some of that does impact games directly. You see what's going on in, in Eastern Europe, uh, unfortunately. Very big impact on the development community. You think what's going on in China, a very big impact on growth um, in the industry. But uh, in general, it's still a secularly growing industry. It's still got a lot of profitability. And these companies in general are not very leveraged, right? Um, they don't have much debt. And so, you know, they're self-funding. They, they, they have a, a great uh, market in which to grow. Um, there are challenges, and I'll come to that. But I think as a result, I would argue that gaming today is a little bit oversold, right? Um, and when the market comes back and people look usually for high-quality names to put cash against first before they go to more speculative stuff, I think gaming will be a net beneficiary of that. Um, but in this environment, it obviously then creates a lot of opportunity, right? Because valuations are where they are. And 
you know, there's still a lot of cash floating around in the ecosystem. There's still a lot of ability to finance. Um, and so, you know, that's very conducive for M&A. It's less conducive for things like if you're trying to go public at this current point in time. Um, now, I do think there are some specific points that, that we are experiencing pain points, right? I mentioned a little bit about uh, some of the development piece in, in Eastern Europe, but there's also things like, um, you know, the talent wars, right? That's increasing. You think about CPIs going up in mobile because of some of the big changes in IDFA and AdTech. Um, you think about, um, you know, what does all of this consolidation mean, especially among some of the platforms um, for a content developer who's trying to get access to audience, right? Does it become harder for that, perhaps? And so there's some secular questions there. And then you have things like, you know, UGC, right, coming into the market and, and eating engagement share from other things. So there's a lot of moving pieces here. And it's actually pretty difficult um, to now see, well, post-COVID, some of the cohort normalization, where does this all land? And who's the winner and who's kind of just going to stagnate? And those questions are are, are not yeah. quite clear just yet. And am I looking okay. back at, at, let's say, 2000, like if we're just talking only about market crashes and how those affect the gaming industry, I think, you know, well, 2008 was the last one. And before that, I, I don't think the gaming industry was quite that big. Do you happen to remember how that affected? I mean, we still had Activision then. We had EA. It was, of course, very console-driven. There wasn't really free-to-play. But what was the uh, what was the effect on the gaming companies then? And I'm not saying that there's going to be a market crash, but you know, it's uh, market crashes every ten years, so so it's kind of like an earthquake. So I think there's three things in my mind that are very different now versus then, which people sh- you know hopefully should appreciate. One is back then you had box sales effectively. Mm-hmm. You go to the store right and you buy uh, forty bucks a game. Uh, which, by the way, in a recession is a big ticket spend, right? For the most part, uh, as a one-off purchase. So, and there's friction. You need to go to the shop, right? And then that has travel costs associated with it too. So, you know, I think the recessionary impact then was actually probably a bit more than it is now. Today, there's barely any friction. Right? You can open up your app store or game store and you can immediately get any game you want. You're also typically going to be stuck at home and now you're going to be thinking about what are cheaper forms of entertainment on a per hour engagement basis well games these days have a lot more content than they ever did before and so the engagement hours can increase if i'm a user i'm saying well maybe if i spend this 40 bucks on this game i'm going to play for 100 hours right you couldn't do 100 hours you know 10 years ago um and then also there's live services so today a lot of games are free and so I'm going to play them anyway. And on top of that, I get this kind of in-app purchase ability. So, you know, if I'm spending one or two bucks a day versus 40 bucks out the gate, my psychology is different around it too, right? So I do think um, that helps. And because the industry is more digital than it was, than it is physical, there's been a massive uplift in gross margins, you know, over that period. Um, so gaming is just a more profitable business than it ever was back then. So I think it's more resilient, is my sense, but it's also more competitive. You mentioned it. There's so many more. There's, there's mobile. There's free-to-play. There's global companies all around the world. Um, so the, the fight for engagement is uh, is more competitive for sure. Yeah, and streaming platforms that also take away engagement, though. Uh, a lot of games, mobile games especially, can be played while streaming uh, streaming. Uh, your favorite shows. Uh, so, Kartik, can you kind of talk about the uh, the mac- macroeconomics, changes in macroeconomics, and how they affect, especially medium to small studios? Uh, as a sector, 
I think gaming is probably more resilient simply because, as Von Hemel said, as a percentage of spend, it's probably the cheapest form of, you know, it's a dollar per hour of, of entertainment. So it's, it's probably cheaper than most other things. And as as a, even today, as a percentage of games industry, as a percentage of disposable income is it's very small, 0.25% or something you know, overall. So, so, you know, as a consequence, you know, it, it will hold better uh, through through an economic downturn, right? But right now, what we're you know right now what we're experiencing, of course, is is a correction in the markets, right? What happens as a consequence? Maybe just looking at it from that lens. Uh, so two things, right? So if you go back, the structure of the gaming industry, their public markets were for mid-sized companies could go public and then use the public currency as well as appetite from public investors to fund acquisitions as they got more scale, right? So, um, so many companies when they went, you know, when they, when they started off the journey in Scandinavia, for example, were relatively small, uh, but then they've grown over time, right? Um, some of the more recent IPOs were also driven with that as a, as a premise. Um, and then in a, and where the environment was, it was given where the equity valuations were, and you know I'm biased, but I don't think gaming ever got ahead of itself in terms of relative valuation. But the correction, as Emil said, has been indiscriminate. So you know it didn't matter that uh, a highly cash generated business was trading at 15 times EBITDA; it's back to like single uh, single digit EBITDA now, right? Uh, so so what that does, of course, is you know there was an obvious valuation arbitrage. So a bigger company that was listed had the multiple uh, and valuation where they could they could pay a reasonably fair price, attractive price, and then they'd be rewarded for executing such an acquisition, right? Whereas now that's that's going to get a bit harder. Doesn't mean it changes the 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 case for why companies will acquire, but you know the the bar gets a little bit little bit higher, right? As to what you need to do and what you need to prove. From those acquisitions, so they'll be a lot more strategic uh, and closer to the core. So that's probably what's gonna what's gonna happen. Um, and this is why you've seen you know certain carve outs and people looking at the portfolio and saying which parts of my business are not being fairly valued. Let's you know try and realize some of the value there. Right, that's number one. Um, and so the the other thing is you know it's uh, it's a global industry. So of course you know if you talk about there are lots of industry-specific headwinds, right? So IDFA definitely has an impact. Uh, we've gone through a period of COVID where growth has been above the trend line. But so, you know, Q1 2022, you know, sensitive our data, and I'm sure you, I mean, you covered it on your own uh, in your presentation. But of course, we're starting to see a decline, right? But, you know, in context, if you go back to 2019 or even 2020 and look at where 2022 is, it's still a healthy growth rate. Of course, it's you know it's taken this way. Right? It's pulled forward some of the spending, so it's natural that you're going to see that. But of course, that right now in this certainly this earning season has been a big topic, uh, and it has been frankly ever since Q2 of last year because of this very you know COVID impact and what's going to happen. So growth has been a concern. So valuations have been pulled back. So you know what we'll see is as a consequence for public 
publicly listed companies, the bar gets higher in terms of the kind of deals that they can do. Um, but, you know, most execs running the businesses, certainly the ones taking a long-term view are not going to change their view on, on M&A. So you still see that, but it'll, it'll be different. Second is, back to the point of, uh, you know, in a market where perhaps certain companies are not being valued appropriately, there will be, you know, potentially, you know, private equity. So you've seen rumors around Ubisoft that was there, but then you have companies like Playtica who have announced a strategic review. So if you see this happen, you'll, you know, there'll be, the types of deals will likely be different. Private equity has not been active, but we're starting to see more of that. You know, Jagex was acquired by Carlyle. You know, we sold another game, another company called Outright Games. Um, we, were, we advised this company called EMK, a private equity firm on the acquisition. So we're starting to see more of that. Um, uh, and so the nature of buyers who can see value in the sector, you will, you will see type, nature of deals change. Um, and then I think there'll be a bigger importance from the private company. So you've seen Scopely being active uh, in, on M&A. They can take a longer term view. Uh, they're not, uh, you know, still privately funded. Moon Active, for example, is highly cash generative. You know, they've done a few acquisitions already, which is working out quite well. So, so players like this who have the financing and who are private will also play a bigger role. So I think the buyers will shift, uh, but the, the drivers for why you should do a deal, particularly given some of the headwinds like IDFA and so on. Uh, so that, that's, that's why we'll see more of the activity. Um, maybe not at the same pace, but it's, it's unlikely that it's just going to stop because of what's happened to the, to the public equity markets. Mm. And, and when we're talking about private equity, we're talking about an acquirer that looks at a target and sees probably some kind of inefficiencies that they can come in and, and fix. Um, is that is that usually how we should view private equity acquirers? So I, I think private equity acquirers, two things. So one is, you know, they're buying a business at a fair price where they know that over time there's going to be a certain level of growth. And second is, you know, you can do incremental acquisition so you can change the, the composition of the business. So, for example, it's a single IP or two, two IPs, but over a three, four-year period, you can turn that into, you know, five different uh, uh, growth pillars that's going to support that business. And maybe that's at that time, it's that business is right for the public markets, as an example, right? Um, it doesn't always have to be uh, cutting costs, uh, although that may be necessary in certain cases, but in certain other cases, just buying the business at the right price and then providing the right funding level so that they can execute uh, on improving the overall mix of the business. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's at least the perception always that the, the private equity is uh, quite a... <laughs> Quite a, I don't know, numbers-driven acquirer, and, and and also, you know, more of a, on the short term rather than long term thinking, to some extent. I, I think, yeah. Look, I think the thing is, I mean, Emil, you can chip in here too. But look, with gaming, given the creativity involved, it's not, it's it's harder to, um, it's harder to completely change the DNA of of a studio uh, or of how things work. Of course, you can make things more efficient, but the minute there's, by and large, there has to be a certain level of autonomy and continuity of that culture. Otherwise, it becomes really hard to let the business improve. 
No, no, I, I agree. So I think, um, and this is a trend, I think, in gaming MA in general, that they used, to, if you look at the previous cycle, you know, maybe 10 years ago, a lot of the MA that happened then was cost driven thinking. Challenge was that most of it didn't work, right? If you look at it, um, what you ended up with is, you know, an impact on the creative culture. Um, and, you know, gaming's it's a people driven business at the end of the day, um, and it's creative. What you've seen in this cycle is much more of a focus on, actually, it's not really about cost, it's more revenue opportunity, right? Is there something that one plus one equals three? Can we do something better together? Now, if I'm a financially driven investor, like a, like a private equity player, you know, they've been watching from the sidelines this activity and they realize that, look, you have to deliver a value proposition that's focused on upside potential, not cost cutting, right? Um, to uh, to a lot of these players. And so there may be some things on the margin that you do, but I agree, it's focused on, well, how can you grow? Is there more that you can do to scale the business or, or uh, uh, invest in it additionally? So, uh, Hemal, uh, can we talk about then how the uh, the future looks like, uh, let's say, in the next three to, to five years? Like, what is your perception on how the market will evolve um, going going a few years forward, I know prediction is extremely hard, especially with these macroeconomic situations. But if we assume uh, a sort of a baseline uh, normal, um, you know, recession and a rebound, then then how does it look for for a gaming industry? Yeah. Okay. So so look, I think you know three to five years is uh, is a long time in gaming. Actually, if you think about what happened over the last three to five years, but I think um, you know my my guess. Um, based on what we're seeing, is there are some very disruptive things that have happened over the last two years. You've got um, platforms increasingly expanding their distribution capabilities to try and be device agnostic. You have them increasing their content scale as well. Um, and you've got this massive shift towards live services and audience-first development. I think. If you pair that together, and then there's some other trends too. I mean, think about um, Web3 and I suppose how that could feed in and perhaps enhance and expand game economies. Um, you know, I think the skill set to win sort of starts to change, right? Where either you're a uh, platform and very large content aggregator, right? Where you're able to capture a very large audience and deliver content to them. Um, and that applies, you know, whether it's UGC or, you know, premium paid or it doesn't matter. Um, and that has distribution leverage effectively over the ecosystem. Or you're a differentiated content player and you have titles that no matter what, people are going to want because they're just so good. Uh, but then the bar on quality rises, right, to, to win and really extract margin against what is a more consolidated uh, audience environment. Um, and then you've got, you know, everybody else kind of, uh, who, who has to compete in that. And so I think what you end up with is a bit sort of like what happened in big media, where you have this barbell that forms, right. Where there's a handful of major platforms, uh, and, and they are, could, could be very different in some form than the platforms we had five, 10 years ago, um, who win. And then there's a, a bunch of differentiated content players, um, who provide unique experiences, uh, who also win, and then everybody else who's kind of doing the same thing gets this slow 
issue on the revenue side, which is, um, you know, the access to audience gets harder. And perhaps on the cost side, you know, talent wars, CPIs, et cetera. So their margins start to compress and their ability to, to push content out uh, compresses too, which drives a lot of M&A. But it also means that you, you would likely go from this extremely fragmented industry to back to sort of more of a consolidated industry, right? Um, that's one view. I think there's an additional layer to that, which is you've got a ton of companies which have been funded, right, over the last, um, uh, I would say, two years, uh, especially by venture capital, by gaming VCs, by, you know, a lot of these blockchain startups too, who could create things that are just different than what the major publishers, the major devs, the major platforms have been creating and could be disruptive from an audience engagement perspective. So I think what you're going to see is some of the older legacy businesses really have to say, are we making content that Gen Z wants, right? Uh, versus these well-funded startups who have a lot of runway and potential to create breakouts. Um, and in that backdrop, this kind of consolidating environment too. So look, if I'm a gamer today, it's amazing, right? I've got buffet of choices and, and never-ending stream of content. If I'm a company, I have to be really thoughtful about the direction I'm heading, um, which is why you're seeing a lot of this activity kind of play through. Well, that's my view. Yeah. And, and when you mentioned platforms and content creators, uh, let's say with an example of, of say, Microsoft, uh, they're essentially both. And, and is that also happening that we're, we're kind of seeing this distinctions between platform and a content creator disappearing, like we saw in streaming uh, with Disney's and Netflix's and HBO? Are we starting to see that also in gaming where platform and content creator becomes the same and forms this walled garden? Yeah, and 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 I yeah, pretty much. I, I think um, the the additional layer I'd add to that is you know there are some platforms that may not necessarily even say we're going to be walled gardens, right? Um, but their value proposition of using them as a consumer gets so high that you know they naturally suck in all the engagement, right? Um, you don't have to make things exclusive, really, these days. If you have enough content, people will come to you anyway. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of that. Um, and look, I also think the other layer, third layer I'd add to this is geography, right? Um, geopolitics has really filtered into this industry uh, as a byproduct of what's going on, especially between the East and the West. And I do think that we actually are probably going from what was previously a more global industry to actually a more regionalized industry, um, where you know the East is dominated and controlled by a certain set of players and the West is dominated and controlled by a certain set of players. And those two ecosystems can develop quite differently. Um, so, you know, we'll see how that plays out. There, there is a lot of uh, focus these days on cross-border M&A. You've seen some of the recent prints. Um, I think we'll continue to see a lot of that. But, you know, increasingly, I think, uh, you know, candidly, you've got kind of the US, you've kind of got portions of Asia, which are just sort of separate from each other, and everyone's playing for everything in between. Uh, so I think, you know, that, that you could end up with a very bifurcated world coming out of the end of that. I think the role of platforms like Microsoft, assuming you know, once the Activision deal closes, and so there's there's you know it's likely to potentially have an impact on how you know a AA developer looking at a, at a at a game and what the monetization prospects from that is likely to be, right? Because there is of course 
uh, a scenario where you know there, there could be it could be attractive enough to build something for effectively a subscription bundle then the question is you know needs to be a very specific game and you you almost have to look at it from a cost and revenue perspective um so there is there's a, there's a driver for you know i know there's now been talk of okay are they going to open up ad monetized free to play games on on console and and uh, uh, so that you know that might be potentially uh, a focus for many developers cuz that uh, you know allows you to uh, to potentially build games and monetize them slightly differently uh, versus potentially a risk of commoditization if you are part of a bundle because the bigger the bigger that gets the harder it is for you to monetize it's, it's problems you've seen on on other streaming platforms that have that have happened right early part of the cycle it's uh, as a someone with valuable actually if you exclude the triple a cuz just the budgets and so on you got to make it work it can only happen on on first party titles but otherwise it needs to follow a different trend so i think this can there's a risk that you know there's a slight disruption to the industry structure and also nature of types of games that somebody would want to build um i think the second thing is all games as a service and uh, even on the pc on pc on console uh, that's going to be a bigger focus area because you know it gives you if you can get it to scale particularly in light of of what's available in terms of financing right now uh, you might see you know new new companies emerge new potential platforms or contenders for this you know uh, metaverse with like multiple players maybe they they maybe they're interconnected maybe they're not but you, you know you would have a real chance of 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 some of these mmo titles turning into one of those right um so i think that's going to have an impact on mobile i think it's going to be more consolidated given the idfa headwinds uh it matters it's harder to it's becoming increasingly harder to target users so uh so again games that have a slightly broader appeal um and perhaps even hybrid monetization are likely to to work better and get to a certain scale because you almost have to the game development focus will change based on the constraints that are placed right and i'm no doubt that uh, there'll be uh, there'll be interesting things that come out of it but th- th- that's definitely a, a challenge and which means consolidation makes a lot more sense um and so equally if new companies emerge that manage to break through uh then they again become extremely attractive as targets you raised some really interesting points that that i think are important as well which is operationally how does this industry evolve right so i think there's two things that i would relay on which is one is this point around evolution of game economies right advertising is one piece of that and if you think about it you know everyone talks about gaming as this 180 billion dollar tam type uh business well advertising is a 700 billion dollar tam business right and guess what if you look throughout advertising's history it's generally chased engagement it went from print to television to you know to now digital and then now it's going to interactive what matters is whether the form factor and the technology can evolve to a point where it can handle that shift when it does you see it now playing out on console um eventually in pc and long standing in mobile there's a lot of dollars that are going to move right from linear 
into interactive. And that opens up the field where people don't have to then think about, you know, hey, am I, am I chasing whales in my games, basically, right? Um, and, and perhaps you'll see a little bit less emphasis on, um, you know, pay to win, if you will, right? Uh, and more of an emphasis on engagement-driven monetization. Um, and, and I think, you know, if you really onto that, blockchain feeds that into that too, right? Where you can have a little bit more of a distributed monetization ecosystem and, and not so focused on pay to win because everyone has the ability to get rewards in some form if they, if they work hard. Um, that's, that's one point. The other point I'd raise is transmedia, right? Um, you know, the definition of a game is evolving, right? I mean, go on, you know, some of these uh, user-generated content platforms, and you know, now you've got music concerts effectively within your games, right? So I think uh, games are the new social networks, right? Um, and when you think about it through that lens, you start to see, oh, wait a minute, this is going to have a lot of engagement hours, but also different types of experiences, right? Um, and whether that's, you know, you're eventually going to be watching, you know, hybrid television slash gaming content or, you know, having music in there or other. Uh, I think these are important trends too. And, and people are spending their time socializing um, in content and gaming companies who can evolve and deliver those features that users expect will do well. The ones who can't, may have to start thinking about, hey, do we operate under these uh, cost plus kind of models with subscription or, or other? You mentioned blockchain, and um, I'm, I'm curious to kind of get both of your opinions on, on large companies as well, midsize and small. So Hemal, uh, from, for large companies, what, is, what are they thinking about blockchain? Of course, we saw some of the big ones like Ubisoft and Square Enix quite openly discuss blockchain. And, and even, even, I believe, with the latest... Um, latest selling of the Montreal and some other studios from, from Square Enix, they were mentioning as perhaps future Web3 investments, uh, would that, that, uh, that sum of revenue that they got from Embracer would be potentially used to, uh, to some of the Web3 uh, initiatives in the future. Um, what is really the, uh, the thinking of, of these large companies around blockchain and how, how open they are about it and how, how eager they are to try different things there? Yeah, and I won't comment on specific companies, but as a general theme, I think, um, you know, I think it's really interesting. I think that there's a very, there was a bit of hype, obviously, in 2021. There's a bit of a balanced view forming now, consensus, at least I see across, you know, US, Europe, and Asia. I would actually say Asia is a bit more forward uh, or ahead, if you will, in the curve on some of these larger players. And actually, the startup ecosystem in the West is probably more interesting than it is in the East. So there's a bit of this counterbalance going on. Um, but I think, Developers, publishers, gaming platforms, they all see a few things that can be interesting for this, for this technology to be used in, right? One is, can you expand the aperture of what a game is, right? And a game economy and the purpose of being a player in a game. So the meta of a game increases, i.e. I could be not just a player, but I'm an investor. I'm a, I'm, I have a governance for even for, for that matter. Right? I could be a political figure effectively in the game. There's, there's all kinds of things you can do once you start having these incentive systems baked in. That's one. Um, there's another piece of this, which is, can blockchain help enable rich marketplaces right, within games? Now, marketplaces have existed in games for a long time, right? Whether you think about Roblox, think about World of Warcraft, there's plenty. Um, but it creates a frictionless ability to put that in. And what's interesting there is you could potentially lift the cap on ARPU, right? Today, if I'm spending in a game, it's sunk cost, right? But if I have the ability to resell or trade, 
uh, all of a sudden my thinking changes. Maybe I'm okay spending 50 bucks rather than 10 because I know I can get 40 back eventually if uh, my items become scarce. Um, that's super exciting, right, for, uh, for a developer and, and, and revenue and margin accretive. And then there's another piece of this, which I think is a bit more we will see, right? But can you make in-game currency real currency? Right? If you think about what a currency is fundamentally, it's, it's always backed by some utility. Right? In the case of the dollar, it's oil. In the case of you know, uh, some other currency, something else. Um, the beauty of some of these in-game currencies is they're backed by real utility, especially at hundreds of millions of users. Um, there's a value to that currency inherently in that ecosystem, and perhaps it can be used more broadly, right? In uh, uh, outside of that, so that that's kind of interesting as well um, in terms of driving um, uh, a broader economy around games. The the fourth thing I'd mention is um, developer incentives. So maybe maybe for example, you can outsource some of your design ideation to the community itself and get your you get your community involved, and now you reward them through in-game, uh, you know, uh, NFTs effectively. And the last one that comes up a lot is this whole interoperability point, which Karthik touched on slightly, right, around Metaverse with that all plugged together. I think that's a while away, right, um, from reality, but it's possible uh, if players can wrap their heads around working together uh, and that being better economically than not, which is to be seen. Mm. And and large companies are okay. I mean... Let's let's put it this way. Whenever they come out with this, they have such a rabid fan bases that are not quite re- as receptive towards the uh, the Web three message compared to uh, compared to you know other other companies. I was just going to say, I think it, look, for the for the larger companies, given exactly what you said, feels like it's harder to integrate these into existing titles, which have very strong communities and very strong views. So it'll have to be newer, maybe newer titles where it's introduced, right? And so, you know, it's, and it's also, at least given the way it's going, evolving around Web3, it's perhaps it's too early in the cycle where um, you see large companies, uh, certainly from an M&A perspective, being active around, let's say, buying up Web3 studios, which feels, feels like it's early in the cycle. Like with everything else, you know, you see this happen repeatedly in tech. There's, there's a lot of interest. There's a little bit of exuberance. And then people start saying, you, you write it off. <laughs> then actually there is true innovation happening. So it might play out over a longer period of time, even though it feels like the pace of activity, financing in this segment has been, uh, you know, it's been very, very strong. But also equally, a lot of good quality gaming teams are now, you know, building around this where... Um, you know, Web3 can be a way to extend the gameplay and, you know, have the right incentive. So you, you, there's no way you can write that off. Um, I think it will also change uh, the parameters for what MA might mean, right? You have uh, so the way these companies are structured, you know, if they issue tokens, uh, how does MA actually work? I think that's still an open question that will be figured out. Um, you've had chains like Polygon use their tokens to execute certain MA. But you know, what happens when it when it comes to studios, it's still it's still unknown, right? Um, so there's a lot of new things which will have to be figured out in the next uh for the next uh, few years. what's your what's your kind of a take on on blockchain gaming in, in you know inside next let's say three years? Do you do you think we'll we'll go through the uh 
the the VR sort of a dip where everybody invests and studios start to divest and then it kind of comes back or or what's what's the uh, what's the perception? I think you know if you've just seen how things played out, right? Uh, you can use uh, when ad monetization came into mobile gaming as an example, right? There was a lot of you know the, perhaps there was a lot more skepticism until you had players. Uh, like the crazy labs or the voodoos of the world getting big. And then, you know, some of them just didn't feel like it was, this wasn't gaming and we shouldn't really own hypercasual as an example, right? Although as a category, it's become fairly large. So I don't think this is a zero-sum game where uh, there will be some variant, I don't know exactly what, but an evolution of Web3 where it makes sense because we've seen that work even without the blockchain, certain things like having a secondary marketplace, uh, um, you know, providing incentives to the community to contribute. So some of these things, uh, or uh, certain people being time time poor, others being you know not having enough money to. So you know you can swap that, right? That's the concept of play to work. So this is we've seen this manifest itself in existing games, MMO economies, and so on. So you can see that that has a role to play. Um, so, you know, I think I think it'll come about. How quickly we don't know yet. There's there's really not a game that's large enough, a Web three game where engagement is so high, where you start measuring it to you know the games that are there today, right? Um, so they're ahead in terms of the valuation attributed to that versus what it means from a pure game perspective. But maybe we'll be able to cross. I think in the in the near term. So. But I don't, at the same time, I don't think the rest of the categories are suddenly going to disappear, right? I don't think this is, uh, uh, you know, there are enough people who want to play a casual mobile game and not worry about, you know, NFTs or earning or whatever. It's just entertainment, right? So so I don't think suddenly you say, oh, Web3 is going to take over all categories of gaming. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think it will probably be additive. Maybe there's some level of overlap, but largely I think it will increase the, the market rather than uh, you know, cannibalize. Well, okay. Uh, so, so thank you, th- thank you, thank you to both. Uh, fantastic conversation, and uh, I'll let you go on on, uh, on now. But, but thank you so much for the for the conversation. Thank you, and thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.